Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Stephen Chimitas. Steve is a partner in Foley's Washington, D.C. office with a practice focused on corporate transactions, financing, and international trade. During this discussion, you'll hear Steve reflect on growing up in Queens, New York, and attending the University of Michigan for both undergrad and law school. But of course, there's a lot more to Steve's story. A lot, a lot more. Amongst other things, what you're going to learn is Steve is a U.S. veteran who served as a JAG officer during the Vietnam War. You'll hear him discuss his early interest in mechanical drawing and naval architecture and how initially he was actually focused on becoming an engineer, but instead decided to go to law school after undergrad. You'll also hear him reflect on the climate of the country during the Vietnam War and how he had an early draft number and that this, amongst other things, prompted him to apply to the Judge Advocate General Corps. He discusses how he spent a year after graduating from law school working as a litigator, but then after that, he started his four years with JAG, which included approximately three years serving at sea, and how to this day, he still holds the record for the longest sea duty stretch of any JAG officer. Also, I want to note that we're releasing this episode during the week of Veterans Day, and my hope is that through hearing Steve's stories... And they are incredible, but that through hearing his stories, you will reflect and thank the many men and women who have served this country. After Steve details the time he spent serving, we then discuss his transition back to private practice. He discusses how he was able to find a litigation position after the four years that he was gone. And it's surprising to hear that he was a litigator because, of course, if you read his bio now, he is a corporate transactional partner. But he talks about how he really built this hybrid litigation and eventually corporate practice that had this focus on maritime and admiralty law. And he shares some amazing stories about really saying yes in challenging situations that allowed him to grow his practice. He also reflects on Foley and how the firm has supported him for the last three decades. And he talks about in particular how the firm supported him during his and his evolving practice and how frankly, he just has kept reinventing himself throughout his legal career. Finally, Steve gives some wonderful advice on the importance of doing what he did, which is taking on challenges and accepting that you will make mistakes, but understanding that that is the best way to grow. And the other thing I would like to add is that after we finished recording this, Steve said to me, you know, we didn't get to talk a lot about my personal life, but you know, I've also been able to travel to at least 110 or maybe 115 different countries. I have captained a number of ships. And I have have my pilot's license, although I don't fly anymore. So what you're going to hear is about the life and the legal practice of an incredibly interesting person. And I really hope you enjoy our discussion. Steve, welcome to the podcast. We're going to just jump right in and I'm going to ask you to give your professional introduction. The elevator speech, as it's called, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm Steve Shemitas. I'm a partner in the Washington office of Foley and Lardner. My practice has been primarily transactional. Over the years, I have also done commercial litigation. I began my practice in Admiralty. I still have a number of maritime clients, and that probably is still my uh, my first love. I love that you called it what it was, which is the elevator speech. No one said that yet in our 70-something episodes, but that's the other benefit of the show. If you want to hear 70 Foley lawyers do their elevator speech, <laughs> you can now do that. <laughs> Uh, but let's start, we're going to, of course, talk about your practice in a bit, but let's start a little bit before that, almost at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? Well, I was born and grew up in in New York City. In my very early years, my parents uh, lived in, in Manhattan, not far from Central Park on the west side of the city. This was uh, right after the, the war years. I was born in the first year of the what's called the baby boomer generation. Early on, we moved to the edge of New York City in the borough of Queens. And although this was New York, it was really quite rural in those areas. The streets were not paved. I went to an elementary school behind which was a working farm. It was quite a bucolic childhood, really, for a city kid. Walked to school, played outdoors all the time. There was a pond nearby, fields, uh, hundreds of acres of woods we played in. Nobody locked their doors. It's hard to imagine that this was uh, was still New York. I went to... No, exactly. You saying bucolic and Queens don't necessarily go together these days. These days. It's changed. It's changed. I went to New York City uh, public schools, and I had a great, really, education. The schools at that time in, in New York were really in, in good shape and were something to be proud of, and they prepared me quite well for college and uh, subsequent study. We're going to unpack that a bit, but before we do, and you've, you've described it a little bit, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about you as a kid, if you had to describe yourself in terms of type of child, I ask all the lawyers this and I get a lot of, I was really into sports, so I really like to read, or perhaps you were spending a lot of time outside. I don't know, but sort of what was what were you into? Well, school was pretty easy, actually. Most of us were all tracked through like math and science prioritization. And all the certain kids sort of moved through the same levels and the classes tended to stay together. I skipped a grade in, in school, but it wasn't terribly challenging. We didn't really have much homework to do. So after school was given up to playing, I'd say as a young kid, I was became interested in, in architecture of all things, which I think is not, you know, it's not the normal sort of policeman, fireman sort of thing. And I remember being, you know, very interested in in the house plans that every now and then showed up in advertisements in newspapers for for new homes or apartments. And my mother saved and passed on in the papers to me from from those early childhood years, actually some architectural renderings I did, drawings of maybe seven or eight of, you know, of fanciful houses or apartments and and the like. I became also interested in in boats and boating. My father was an avid fisherman. I didn't care much for fishing, but I enjoyed being on the water and being in boats. And I came to find out that there was something called naval architecture, which is the design of ships and ship construction. And I thought, well, what a great combination, you know, architecture and boats. So I decided that's what I was going to be probably about age 12 or 13. And in high school, I dropped my foreign language studies and and at the recommendation of my father, who had studied engineering, took a course in, in mechanical drawing, which was really kind of more on the vocational side of our high school curriculum. And I had a lot of opposition from guidance counselors who says, you're never going to get into college unless you take four years of French, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I took mechanical drawing, and that enabled me then to get a series of summer jobs beginning uh, before I was 15, working in engineering and naval architecture offices as initially an apprentice and then sort of a junior draftsman, all of which kind of gave me an edge up when then I applied to college to study naval architecture. That is so interesting. So it's really easy to see how the seeds were planted with the Navy and with maritime. And by the way, you say mechanical drawing are words I haven't heard in a while. My middle school offered mechanical drawing along with woodshop. I took both. I think I was probably in eighth grade. I really got into mechanical drawing and I have not thought about that in a very long time until this moment. So I kind of appreciate you for dislodging that memory. But tell me, well, maybe you had a comment on that, but otherwise I want to talk about that progression to college. Yeah, so it was a pretty easy choice for me. I wanted to study uh, study naval architecture, and there were very few schools in the country that, that offered that program. Yeah, and what is that? What does that mean? Like, we hear the words you're saying, but what is naval architecture? Well, naval architecture is the art and science of ship design and construction, both in terms of basic layout, what you might consider an engineer might do in deciding what room is going to go where and what's the house going to look like in terms of the aesthetics. But it also has an overlay of that's equivalent to more like structural engineering. How are you going to hold this ship together? And then how are you going to make it move? I had design jobs that involved both engine-powered ships as well as small sailboats. So you got to see the practical side of bringing this whole package together. So that's uh, naval architecture and marine engineering. So I was accepted to the, the largest program in the country, which is, of all places, at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which you wouldn't expect to be a place where you'd find ship design and construction. Not at all. Not even a little. So I, I went to Michigan, as the listeners know, for, for law school. So I apologize if this podcast now takes a, a steep turn towards, you know, sort of go blue. But I was not aware that the school had or has anything related to the Yeah, there's a, there's a big towing tank in uh, the West Engineering Building down on the central campus that dates back to the early 1900s. I think it, initially, you know, the Great Lakes is a major shipping center. And Ann Arbor early on just kind of filled a void and nobody else competed with them. So that became my college program. So you go, you go from, from New York to Ann Arbor, Michigan, because you identified them as having this program. And of course, you know, this was some time ago, but I'm curious as to what that transition was like for you. Had you really left that part of the country much prior to going to college? No, I've basically never been out of New York. Uh, family vacations, we had gone to New Hampshire or Vermont or, or, or Maine in the car. I had once been in Philadelphia. We'd gone to Canada once on a family fishing trip. But otherwise, no, I had never been been west of the Appalachian Mountains. Totally, you know, first time on an airplane. It was really quite, quite extraordinary. And I was young. I went to college. I was not yet 17. And, you know, boys mature later in life. I was not much taller than about five feet at that point. Hadn't had my growth growth spurt. A lot of things were aligned against me. Bigger, stronger kids, uh, more certainly more worldly. But school was very nurturing and I enjoyed it and, and did well enough to progress on. Yeah. And so what was the plan? I mean, I know we have a lot of ground to cover, but but what happens next? You go there, that's your focus. Was the hope to work in that or what, what happened next? Well, yes, it was. It was my focus and building on the jobs that I had had in, in while well, still in high school. 
And then the opportunities that being at the program in Michigan gave me, I had additional summer summer work, working in the, in the shipping field in increasingly professional capacities with greater and greater responsibility. These were much more than internships. I was being paid regular, regular wages and had a full sort of responsibility for the work I was doing. But those experiences also showed me the negative side of the engineering field, which to my view was that too many talented people sort of got pigeonholed and stuck in a back room and were not involved with the with the big picture of the business or the or the industry. In a way, was there a, a ceiling of some sort? It was very hard to break through. My experience working with almost all always men much older than me who had been in this profession quite a while and were sort of dead-ended to my perspective as a, as, a, as a youngster. I also had a double major with, with mathematics, and I uh, was on a track to, to graduate in, in four years by, by doubling up on some courses. In those years, because of the draft, you didn't take extra time to get through school. You didn't know what was going to happen. But I decided sort of midway between my junior and senior years that I really needed to do something after school. I didn't drop out like a lot of engineers did. I wanted to finish the program, but I thought I needed some other background or credential to give me a different career path and not just be kind of pigeonholed as an, as an engineer. So I looked at going to business school as the sort of the first thought, and I, I found the curriculum kind of boring and not interesting. So I said, all right, well, I'll go to law school. It just seemed like an obvious thing to do. I didn't really have much background. I had two uncles who were lawyers, but I didn't look to them as, as role models in any way because they were working in sort of small litigation practices of, of basically as solo practitioners. And I was just blown away by law school. I, I basically went across the street from engineering school on the central campus to the, to the beautiful law school at the Law Quad at, at Michigan. And within the first week, I was just blown away by the by the study of law and just fascinated by it. And immediately, well, my career path was going to be in the law, not in business. But I was able to have the good fortune to combine my interest in maritime matters with the law. And so the practice of law that I initially went into was admiralty and maritime, which was yeah. a, which was a great fit. Now, did me. you essentially you you finished the engineering and then you you started law school right after? Is that the that was the yes. progression? Yes. And you knew kind of what focus you wanted to have, or did you figure out? No, while you were in no, law school? no. Okay. I went to law school with the intention of working in the shipping field in some capacity, having a credential as an engineer and as a lawyer, and it was only. Once I was in law school, I said, oh, my God, this is great. This is great. I'm going to be a lawyer. Maritime law. There it is. Well, and as you can tell as you're talking, I just, I beam and I beam at all of my guests, I think. But I just find it so fascinating how, I mean, you know, the show's called The Path and the Practice, how we went from mechanical drawing to naval architecture to deciding to not focus on engineering, but go to law school and then figure out a way to bring all that together, which I just think is so interesting. But tell me more, what what happens? And by the way, was law school an adjustment for you? I like to ask, even though for you know our, our senior partners, this was some some time ago, but what do you remember from that experience? A, a lot of people find you know law school was such a shock to them and just really hard and, and challenging. I don't want to say it was a breeze, but my undergraduate degrees in engineering and mathematics are all geared to problem solving, where you take a set of disparate facts and circumstances 
and you try to figure out what to do with them and, and what the path is to go forward and to get to your desired resolution. And so much of law school, whether it's issue spotting or the legal profession, is much the same thing. We're amassing either rules and regulations or facts or circumstances that have happened and trying to create some resolution. And so the big challenge for me in law school really was the amount of prose reading that had to be done because engineering was much more distilled. You might be looking at one page of numbers for three hours. We weren't reading 60 pages of text or something like that. So that was an initial adjustment, but I read as a kid and enjoyed reading anyway. So no, it was just uh, it was just great, and law school was just again. I don't want to say it was a breeze, but it was fun and rewarding and challenging. And people were so different than the people in engineering school. That was all new. I stayed and lived in the law quad all three years because I really wanted to be immersed in the law school and not do anything else. There's also something I think just uh, I think maybe everyone feels this way about their law school, but there's a particular nostalgia I think for Michigan law grads. There's a there's a magic on the law quad that I can. Well, it was it was a magic. Yeah, it was a magical place, and you know you could turn out of bed and be in class in in 45 seconds, and then be in the dining hall in another minute, and be in the library, you know, in another minute. Everything was right there, right in your head. The whole universe was right there behind you in this beautiful, beautiful setting. I cannot disagree with you. That's a perfect characterization. So what what happens next? You graduate from law school and then what? Well, you have to understand that the world and the country was a very different place. I went to college uh, during the beginning of the Vietnam era. And when I started law school, it was at a time when the war in Vietnam had taken a totally different turn. The so-called Tet Offensive changed the country's view of the matter. It greatly increased the number of people being called up for the draft. At the same time, there was a shift in political sentiment about people avoiding the draft. And there was a reaction about those who had means could avoid the draft simply by continuing their studies after college. It was understood and it was thought to be a good thing that if you were in college, you should have a deferment from the draft. But then if you went on to grad school, you continued to be deferred until you got to be, if you stayed in school long enough, uh, draft stopped if you reached 27. So for most people, that was kind of a way, if you had the means, you could just sort of stretch it out. So in my first year of law school, just as we started first year, draft deferments for graduate school were abolished, except for medical and dental school maybe for divinity school also, I suppose. And at the same time, to provide some predictability about the draft and less randomness in terms of personal planning, a lottery system was instituted nationwide. And each day of the year, basically what number was picked for that day of the year, and then the draft boards were going to fulfill their, their obligations in the sequence of those draft lottery numbers. Well, my uh, my birth date drew lottery number six. So you had to have a high number to be safe. Six, obviously, was not pretty a safe early. number. Yeah, pretty, pretty so, early. So uh, I was in the crosshairs of the draft. But again, everyone has a different view of such matters. I was not looking to avoid the draft. or ser- I was not looking to avoid service. But I didn't see myself as a draftee in the Army. It's just not my self-image. So I applied for a number of uh, officer programs, mostly in the Navy, also in the, in the Marines and the Air Force. The downside of those programs, which gave you the ability to 
continue your studies was that they required a four-year obligation rather than a two-year of the draft. But again, I, I saw the importance of having a meaningful role as an officer in hopefully the Navy as outweighing the additional time I would put in the service. I applied for a number of programs. I was fortunate to get selected for my, my first choice program, which was the Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps. I think in large part, uh, my selection had to do with the fact that I had such a strong maritime background. I was the only candidate that, that did that. It was a highly selective program. There were incredible competition and everyone trying to get into programs that would allow them to finish school and not get pulled out. And to put things in perspective, we had 360 in my first year class starting at Michigan. Because of the draft, because of people voluntarily dropping out of school to join the reserves or go into teaching or do something else that would avoid the draft for them, at the start of our second year, we were down to 230. Wow. Yeah. And uh, my year is the smallest graduating class in Michigan since World War II. We took a lot of transfer students, but still we have the smallest smallest class. So that sort of affected my next career path and what I was going to, going to do. I was hired by an admiralty firm in New York who knew I was going to have a four-year commitment in, in the Navy, but uh, it was kind of like an extended summer internship, if you would, right? Most firms wouldn't talk to me because they knew I was going away for four years. This one said, yeah, we'll do that in part because of personal connections. The then associate dean at Michigan had been a roommate of a senior partner in that firm when they had both worked in another New York Wall Street firm. So that was my introduction to that firm. And maybe because of that personal connection, as well as maybe my background, they decided to take a risk on me, give me that, what amounted to a, a one-year stint as a first-year associate before I went uh, active duty in the Navy. Okay. So essentially you went through all the process of applying, you get into JAG. So for those who don't know what the Judge Advocate General is, it's JAG. They probably heard that acronym. Did you, right after law school, then become a JAG officer or did you practice with the New York firm? I was commissioned while I was in law school. I had to spend one summer, the summer that you normally spend, you know, as a summer clerk between second and third years, I had to spend with the, with the Navy at Newport, Rhode Island. It wasn't a hardship tour. I went sailing and played tennis after our required duties every day. Newport in the summer is a, is a great duty, duty assignment. But I was commissioned then. The deal was we had to be admitted to the bar before we could go on active duty. I was admitted in New York in January and was called up to report in February, but I had a trial coming up and I asked whether I could be deferred. And I also liked the idea of going to Newport in May rather than February better. Just again, if anyone knows Newport, Rhode Island, it's better to be there in the summer than the winter. Well, and tell me about the sort of work you did as a JAG officer. And also I want to preface this a little bit because we're going to release this episode the week of Veterans Day. I don't know if it'll come out on Veterans Day, but that week. And the genesis for our discussion was, you know, I reached out to our Veterans and Allies Affinity Group and um, Patrick McMahon, who's one of the co-chairs, reaches out to everyone and says, hey, anybody want to volunteer to be on the podcast for, for Veterans Day? And fortunately, Steve, you said yes. And you said, because I feel like I'm probably one of the last people, particularly at the firm, who served during the Vietnam era. And so here we are today talking about it. But I would love to hear more about that experience. Well, my time in the Navy was transformative. 
on the one hand, there was some concern that I'm stepping off a career path for four years and all my peers were going to get ahead of me, make partner, move up the career ladder, do whatever they're going to do, earn lots of money while I was off doing other things on a much reduced <laughs> compensation basis. But I really wasn't that concerned about it. I, I saw going in the Navy as a, as a, as a great adventure. I mean, I wouldn't have chosen it, but for the draft. But it having come along, I thought it was really a great, great opportunity to go. Shortly after I reported to active duty, there was a mix-up with my papers. This only could happen, you know, in, in a big bureaucracy like, you know, the Army or the Navy. And I, I was called into some administrative office and said, because somebody dropped the ball on processing your documentation after you passed the bar, and when you should have moved into a certain different type of classification, you have the right now to reject this assignment. And if you want, we'll just keep you here at Newport and you'll probably be released from the Navy in three or four months. Wow. What a decision point. Okay. Well, you know, he says, but you got to let me know. <laughs> like now. Mm-hmm. I thought about it for a short, very short time. and said, no, you get it fixed. I'll stay. It just didn't sit right with me to take advantage of playing something sharp. I had made that commitment. I had taken somebody else's place who would have been in that program who might not have gotten gotten through school otherwise. So I, I went ahead. And after some finish, uh, what's called justice school at, at Newport, our first assignment was at Pensacola, Florida, where I was on the staff of the chief of naval air training and uh, learned the basics of military justice and counseling. I did some court-martial work, but primarily I served as a legal advisor on a small airfield base, dealing with whatever problems came up on that base, both uh, with the Navy personnel, with the civilians, with neighboring communities, with anything, anything that came up, the full gamut of things. But if I was going to be in the Navy, I wanted to be at sea. There were very, very few seagoing billets. At that time, the JAG Corps had about five or 600 lawyers, and there were 12 or 13 positions at sea. But again, I think because of my maritime background and the fact that those were all volunteer positions, I got selected for one. And so with, within a year, I was on board an aircraft carrier as the, uh, the judge advocate aboard that ship. And two weeks after I reported aboard, we received orders to go to Vietnam. The Navy sort of has an Atlantic fleet and a Pacific fleet. Typically, Atlantic fleet ships would stay in the Atlantic or the Mediterranean. But because of the big push here at the end of the Vietnam era, they were bulking up. And so our ship went to Vietnam, and I spent 10 months in the, in the combat zone, was ashore in Vietnam for a time, and uh, saw at some distance what you know war and combat's like. Lost shipmates who were either shot down or killed in the line of duty and accidents on board ship. It's a dangerous place, launching and recovering aircraft and handling weapons on on board a ship. But I did a wide, wide range of, of things aboard ship, basically served in a way as kind of like the local district attorney deciding what cases are going to get prosecuted. This was at a time when heroin was cheaper than scotch, you know, in the in the Far East. So it was a lot of drug cases. There was a uh, time, this was right after all the unrest in the major cities in the U.S., 
And so it was a lot of racial tension in, in, uh, in the Navy also. And most of the ship were young men between 18 and 22, prone to get into trouble particularly when they go ashore after 45 or 60 days at sea without much distraction and working 12 to 14-hour days. So I handled all legal problems ashore for our ship and actually our, our, our fleet. I was on the staff of the admiral whose ship we were part of also. I ran a legal aid clinic aboard for all the legal problems of the sailors and Marines who were aboard the ship. I taught a course in business law as a part of an extension service for a university that ran whenever we were deployed. I visited the smaller ships that were in our fleet, usually uh, being transferred by helicopter and being let down from a, by a wire hoist to the deck of these small ships and then being picked up again by wire after my time aboard, which might be a few hours or a day handling whatever kind of legal problems they had. I supervised investigations into various uh, issues that came up, whether it was aviation accidents or, or fires on other ships or criminal matters. I ran a department, or I should say an office, uh, seven, eight people working for me, handling all the disciplinary problems and related issues. I mean, we had 5,200 guys aboard. There were a lot of things that were happening. And so it was a very dynamic, interesting, challenging time. I was the principal you know, advisor to the captain and the admiral. So they were my clients in terms of you know, giving advice about all kinds of matters. And it was an exciting time. After Vietnam era ended and there was a, a peace of sorts, we spent a, about a year in the Mediterranean. We did the same thing in a peacetime environment. Spent a lot of time ashore dealing with the local police and legal authorities there, dealing with the presence of our, our sailors there. And so after all of that, at some point you transitioned back to private practice. And I also just have to say, I wish this was a much longer podcast because there's so many things you've said that I would love to to ask more about, but I'm, I'm, I'm not because I think you gave a great explanation. But after that, so did it end up being four years? Was that the overall time period for it? Yeah, I got released a little bit early, but with my uh, my summers and the active duty was four years. After the law school part, that ended up in uh, three years and nine months. But essentially, I was in for in for four years. I thought about staying in the Navy. I enjoyed what I did, but fundamentally, I thought it was a little bit well. I'm going to grow out of this. I mean, if you're a pilot and you get to keep flying, that's great. But I would never be able to, to basically go to sea again. As it was, I I have the longest sea duty stretch of any JAG officer because I volunteered for a second tour. Usually it's only 15 months for us. And I spent almost three years at sea. It was never going to be as interesting. I'm going to be stuck ashore in an admin type, more admin type role. And it was after wartime. So you started having a lot of more Mickey Mouse regulations and things that were just silly. Too much bureaucracy rather than mission. Yeah, well, and I also just want to note one thing you said about the concern. And I, and I get where you were in the draft and there wasn't, you know, you know, like there's a lot of choice, but you said you were concerned about people who would essentially get more of a head start on their career and that you were going to be taking this time away. But based on all of the things you said, and I know you mentioned it was a really formative time, and I can I can only imagine it sounds like the things you did, the experiences you had, the experience was way more than three or four years from what I've heard. You probably developed uh, skills that many people have taken careers to develop. Well, absolutely. Some of that only became apparent with the passage of time. 
But there are things that I, you know, saw and did in the in the Navy that no one in civilian life has an opportunity to do. Understand really responsibility and duty. See the true meaning of courage to develop your confidence and your ability to take on challenges that beyond anything you've ever done or unlike anything you've ever done. And to understand the the importance of training and preparation for things. I did all kinds of things, including got qualified. Again, outside of my normal role that I was going to do, I volunteered for all sorts of other things. I wanted to make that experience as full as I could. So even though JAG officers are not qualified to be involved with the operation of the ship, I volunteered on my ship to stand grid watches and learn how to do that and be part of the operating part of the ship. And I, and I did that together with all my other duties, usually getting up at 3.30 to take what was called the morning watch from 4 to 8 on the bridge so that I could see that side of navigation and operation. Because I was also in aviation commands, I thought it was important to understand the aviation side. So I volunteered and got qualified to fly what's called backseat in Navy jets and, and flew backseat in Navy jets. We had an experience where one got into trouble and uh, I survived a, a crash landing in a Navy jet, walked away, really due to the skill and courage of the, of the pilot. It was just he and I, and he helped pull me out after we came to a stop. These are things you don't do in, in a normal a normal law practice, and they not even close. I'm sorry, you just explained being in a crash land. Okay, keep going, please. These you know life experiences serve you well as you go forward. We'll talk about perspective. So, what was that like transitioning back? Did you return to that firm? Well, the downside was the transition back was very very difficult. When I got out, I was uh, looking to come to Washington or, or go back to New York. And basically, the the firms that I interviewed all basically, if they offered me a job, basically wanted to start me as a first year, saying, well, you worked in this one field, but then you're gone for four years. We don't know where you are. You get to sort of start over. It was extremely frustrating, extremely frustrating. Or I had had offers of jobs, which were really not necessarily partnership track, being hired to work on special projects or the like. I looked at some government jobs too, but having been in the Navy, I really wanted to go in a different different direction at that point. Ultimately, it just so happened I talked to the firm that I had been with before I went in just to say, hello, I'm, I'm back around. And they said, you know, that case you were working on before you went in four years ago is coming up for trial. We'd love to have you come back and be on the team for it. And I wasn't really keen on living in New York because I was moving to Washington. I was going to be married. And they said, well, we have a Washington office. You can, you know, go down there one day a week. And it was a heavily mobile practice. We did a lot of trial work all over the country and outside the country also. So that's what I did. I went back to the same firm, picked up the file that I'd left four years earlier and jumped right into this, this, this trial. And I really built my later career on that because that case, we were representing, of all things, a Soviet shipping company. That's the United USSR, the former Soviet Union. They had a big shipping fleet in those years, and they had gotten involved in a, in a ship collision, one of their ships, and we were representing them. They had no presence in the U.S., and I used the connections that I made on that to ultimately have the Soviet Union as my client when I moved to Washington and left my New York firm. This is also explaining some things because when I look at your bio, you know, today I look at you as a transactional or, you know, deal lawyer and 
what you're talking about is the litigation that sort of, you know, got you back into private practice. But I also know you have an international focus as well within your practice. So I'm seeing some of those the connections there, but tell me about the the how your practice then progressed into you becoming a transactional or a corporate lawyer. So the admiralty practice I was in was mostly dealing with the resolution of ship collisions and other casualties, fires, groundings, strandings, things like that. And it's a primarily a litigation practice. These cases went on for years and years. You know, there's unlike car collisions, there's no skid marks on the ground. You can't tell what happened very technical reconstruction to establish what ship was doing what and uh, to figure out who's responsible for the for the like a lot of conflicting witness witness testimony and again very little physical evidence unless you can work backwards from how the bow of a ship might be deformed to figure out who hit who for example and that's where some of my engineering background was very helpful and kind of was I had a unique role and again one of the reasons I guess I was recruited to do that to do that work my introduction to commercial work was is actually quite a quite a funny story because I told you we were working for the Soviet Union and uh, one of their shipping companies handling this ship collision litigation, and this was a time right after the USSR and the USA had come into what was called detente or a warming of relations between them, a blossoming of commercial relationships, and so the Soviets were looking to establish uh, commercial beach sheds in the U.S. and open offices, commercial offices in the U.S. Well, their only representation in the U.S. was the same group who we dealt with for our our ship collision case. And uh, we would normally have meetings with their group and our whole litigation team. And one day they, they came in sitting down, we're talking about the case, and they said at the end, by the way, we need to establish a company to be the framework for this new business you want to do in the U.S., can you open a, we think it's called a corporation for us. Basically, that's how they put it. Our team was headed by a senior partner and then a junior partner, an associate senior to me, and then me, and somebody was junior to me. And the senior partners said, well, I'm an admirably litigator. I, I really know anything about that. And the junior partner said the same thing. And the senior associate said more or less he had never done it. It seemed to me it couldn't be that hard. <laughs> I had never done it, but I said, sure, I'll take care of it. And that was the beginning of my commercial practice. That opening and, and knowing when you have openings, and this is an awfully important lesson for all our young lawyers. When you see an opening, you got to have the courage to take it and walk through that door. That opening and setting up that little corporation, which involved all of calling CT Corporation, which I learned about, hardly took any time of mine, but it gave me a channel of communications that was outside the hierarchy of our litigation case. And when the next thing came along where they wanted to hire somebody to be the CEO of that company, they asked me to help them write an advertisement to go in the in the Wall Street Journal. That was the place you look for people those days. And I rewrote theirs and you know helped them hire somebody. And they got great response to that ad. And the fellow they hired was told that I had written the ad. He came to see me and say hello. And around that time, I was leaving to move to, to Washington. I was married. I was traveling back and forth. It was getting old, commuting back and forth. And I said, I'm moving to Washington. And they said, great, we need a lawyer in Washington. And so that's how at the very early stage of my career, I became counsel in the USA to the Soviet Union 
And there are 10 ship-owning companies that total, owned a total of 600 ships. Wow. And so from there, I can only imagine. Yes. Well, but that, that story, like you said, and the lesson in saying yes and stretching yourself and it you know, creating this whole other path that you, you know, hadn't thought of probably the day before you were asked how to create a corporation is an important one. Yeah. And then, you know, I got to, got to Washington intending again to join basically the same kind of like litigation practice, but Washington, the firm I came to had more of a business counseling practice with maritime, not just litigation. So I got a lot involved in the business of shipping and from the business of shipping, it went to business generally. And so for many years, I did maritime business, business generally, and and litigation. And my maritime litigation led to commercial litigation. And when I came to Foley, before I came to Foley, I was the founder of a Admiralty and Aviation Boutique. We're a small firm, never more than eight lawyers. But we primarily, we did maritime aviation litigation, some counseling. When I came to Foley, I did both litigation and business. I was in both departments, I think. One of the very, very few in the firm. I was going to say that's not common, not common it's at all. Very uncommon. But after some years of doing that, I just gave up all the litigation cold turkey. It was a big step because litigation was half my billings as a partner and about half my hours as a as a billing attorney, you know, as a timekeeper. But I had enjoyed the transactional side much more. I found in the litigation, at the end of the day, win, lose, or draw. Most clients were unhappy. Even if you won, they complained about your bill. In transactions, you closed the deal. People went out to dinner and celebrated. Both sides. I mean, it's unheard of in litigation. I'm laughing. So as a lot of the listeners know, so I was a commercial litigator for not quite eight years before leaving practice. And I remember as a summer associate, I think I was definitely talking to a corporate lawyer and they pointed to, they had a lot of deal toys. You know, their little trophies from deals closing. And they looked at me and said, you'll never get one of these as a litigator. <laughs> so. well, that's true. No, but, you know, I must say litigation was a very important and valuable training. You learn to look at things differently. You see what goes wrong. You see how people twist things. You see how people's memories are just not, not reliable. When I came to Washington and left the litigation practice that I had, primarily litigation practice in New York, and was joining what was going to be primarily a maritime commercial practice, I said just before I started, and as the offer had been made after you know some back and forth, I said to the, to the fellow who had recruited me, the partner there, I said, listen, I, I just want to make sure you understand, I've been a litigator, I've not been a commercial lawyer. He said, kid, don't worry about it. If you're a litigator, we can make you a commercial lawyer. We can't go the other way. <laughs> commercial That's lawyers can't learn litigation. Yeah, we're not going to. Yeah, they're not going to pick up civil procedure and all that. It doesn't that. happen that way. So then he said, litigation was great training for you. So much as engineering and mathematics was great training for law school, litigation and conflict resolution was great training for transactions and negotiations. Absolutely. Well, and I, I just love seeing all those threads come together. But when you said you were doing a healthy mix of both, the few lawyers that I know who do that, you know, in Foley or outside of Foley, I'll call them TV lawyers because it's usually only on TV where you'll see someone who's like, I have a deal closing and a trial on Tuesday. But there are people who've in fact had practices like that, you being one of them. But see, what I'd also like to hear from you is, so you, you mentioned about when you joined Foley, but I'd like to hear more about 
about you being at Foley and you know your thoughts on the firm, you know how we've kept you over the years, and maybe the things you want people to know about Foley. So I've been at uh, Foley something over thirty years now, which is you know a long, long time, particularly long considering I had had you know a couple of careers before that and since. 10 years in, in, in my own little boutique firm before that and two big firms before that and my Navy time. Foley has been an amazing platform for me and I, I have nothing but admiration and gratitude for my partners and, uh, and the management of the firm in giving me the, the freedom and the resources to do basically whatever I wanted to, whatever I could do to build and thrive in the, in the practice of, of law. Just like the decision to give up litigation and go to transactions, I was fully supported. Whatever I wanted to do, now it was my risk. If I fell on my face, I don't know how long I'd be supported. But I had nothing but support in, in everything. I met great people, and the partners, almost without exception, have been extremely generous and flexible in the in their time. A lot of my important client relationships came from introductions from partners in the firm. They were the best source of, of business. Foley uh, has grown considerably in the, in the 30 years since I joined, the 30-plus years since I joined the firm. Originally, I don't know, maybe we were 200-so at that time and in, in just you know a, a, a few offices. Because now D.C. Was, was one of Foley's first offices after D.C. was the second office. Yeah, exactly. D.C. was the second office of the firm. Yep, it went from Milwaukee to D.C., when I came to the D.C. office, first of all, it was across the street from where I had been, and we didn't even need a moving truck. We just rolled everything across the street. The office, I think, had 16 or 17 lawyers, 10 partners, five of whom I knew from prior firm I had been with. We had all been together. And so it was very easy, easy fit to start with. One of the members of the management community at that time was a law school classmate of mine, which also kind of helped bridge the gap. And I felt very comfortable joining the firm because I had a lot of friends in DC and I felt comfortable with the firm. I knew, knew about it. The platform that I've had with the support of the firm has enabled me to do all kinds of amazing things, great practice, wonderful mix of, of clients and opportunities, being able to work with other partners, being able to call on other partners in a selfless way to assist on transactions or litigation that I've had, the support and the resources of the IP department, which was something totally new to me, has been nothing short of, of miraculous. Some of my principal client relationships started out as small IP clients and we grew them into major corporate clients or our corporate clients when they ran into issues involving technology we had great resources on the patent side to be able to support that as well as trademarks trademarks have been an important part of a lot of the things we've done the experience of being able to you know mentor young people coming along is very rewarding and just like all teaching you always learn something when you're you know when you teach somebody something so it's been a continued growth field for me i must say the other thing that's that's kept me in the game so long and why everything is still so fresh and i don't have you know you hear about lawyers who are burned out and just frustrated and cynical i keep reinventing myself and my practice I've done so many different different things. I had never done, ever seen anything in M&A until well into my practice. And I was representing a, a litigation client who had recently gone, gone public. 
and wanted to start an acquisition practice. I had handled some negotiations for them of conflict matters, resolutions with uh, disputes of various sorts, and had negotiated some things for them. So as soon as they completed their IPO and had stock and wanted to go out and acquire people, they called me and said, listen, we're going to go on an M&A kick now, and we're going to have a kickoff meeting Monday. We want you to be there to lead the legal side of it. I knew nothing, nothing about this area whatsoever. So I said, sure. What are you going to say? No, exactly. And then perhaps there's some other people around. You can ask questions. <laughs> Went to the library. Libraries were a big deal then. Got every book I could find about M&A, including a wonderful book called Anatomy of a Merger. Read them over the weekend, showed up Monday. And within three years, we had done six deals. Wow. But that point about the evolution and growth of your practice is really an important one. And I think it's one that we don't talk about a lot. And it's one that people experience, but we don't necessarily label it and say, your practice may grow and change. Whether or not you fully sort of switch you know, sides between corporate and litigation, what you focus on as a deal lawyer, what you focus on as a litigator, and so on and so on. And and then also there is this level of you're good at these broader, these like these attributes, right? That like judgment calls and advising and whatever. There's some broader kind of like uber habits that I think inform whatever practice you may have. Steve, earlier you gave, I think, some really interesting context for also the growth you've seen at the firm and the various ways the firm has supported your career over the years. As you mentioned, you joined with about 200 lawyers. As of this week with our first year starting, we are at 1,100 lawyers. And now I think with the addition of the Salt Lake City office, we have 22 U.S. offices. So just a tremendous you know, change in growth you've seen over the years, something I thought was funny when I first, I have a good friend who's a partner at Foley, and he sent me that the history of the firm, 1842 to 1992, with a note that said, congrats, we're glad you're going to join us. I expect you to have read this by your first day. And I did because I'm from the Milwaukee area and I wanted to know about the progression of this firm. And that is where I learned, because I just would have guessed what the second office is probably Madison, maybe Chicago. That's where I learned that our second office was DC and that the footprint of the firm actually grew in a way that perhaps you wouldn't have guessed. So it's been really interesting hearing you talk about joining that office early on. I remember the 1992, we had a big celebration for the 150 years. We're all in, in Milwaukee. In those years, most partnership firm meetings were in Milwaukee, which was the center of gravity. Not so much so these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we as we do wind down, I'm going to ask you the final, final question, which is overall, when you think of advice to somebody navigating a legal career, and you've already given such great advice, but I'm, going to, I'm asking you again, what's your advice to that law student or that person who's early in their career? Well, I think it's important to gain as many experiences as you can. For example, while you're, while you're in law school, whether you have any interest in legal aid or not, Legal Aid is a wonderful vehicle to understand the difficulty of dealing with clients, the challenges of dealing with clients, and managing a case and trying to bring things together. Because you'll find uh, whether you're dealing with the CEO of a company or a single mother struggling to maintain her household, they have a lot of things on their mind. And their priority is not yours. And their approach to their problem is not the way you're going to organize things to proceed. So that legal aid experience will stand you good stead 
trying to interview others going forward and trying to deal with things and get information. So whether it's legal aid or any kind of other clinic in, in law school or program, you want to have as broad experience as you can dealing with people in, in different settings. I think it's also important to be willing to take on every challenge. I've seen too many times people are a little hesitant. Well, I, I've never quite done that before. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> We're uh, nurturing and supporting of the community. And if someone takes on a project and gets over their head, they just, you know, ask your mentor, ask your supervising partner or associate for help. They're almost always going to sit down with you and explain to you what you need to do and how this goes, what goes on. Don't be afraid of, of making mistakes early on. That's the only way you're going to learn. But you got to take on those challenges to get the self-confidence to take on other things that are going to come along. And you have to have, you know, the courage of your convictions. Early on, after I, I came to Washington, now had my own independent clients, Soviet shipping companies that I was represented, representing, I got a call maybe the second week I was there from the CEO of the new U.S. company, and he asked me a question point blank. Can we or can we not do X? So my first answer is, well, uh, let me think about it and get back to you. He says, okay, I got two hours. Well, this is a very, very gray area question. And so after looking at the applicable statutes and trying to find the other things, and I really didn't have any colleagues to talk to because the Soviets were competitors with every other shipping company in the world. So I couldn't talk to anybody else in the field for their guidance. And there was nobody else in the firm doing that kind of work exactly at the time. So I was on my own. So I called them back and I said, well, started off on the one hand and the other hand, you know, typical lawyer answers. He said, wait a second, wait a second. I need a yes or no. Don't tell me, you know, this, that, or the other. You're going to be my counselor. I need your advice. So I learned early on, you got to take a stand. You have to decide what is, what is it you're recommending. And there's only so much that qualifications and limitations and exceptions can do. So I took a deep breath, thought about it, and gave him a, my recommendation, along with the reasons why I thought that was the right course to take. And we had a great working relationship for years after that. And so that's a very important lesson for, for people. You can't, you can't sit on the fence forever. There are times where you're going to have to decide what it is. You may be wrong, but you better have good reasons about why you come down a certain way. All of that is fantastic advice. My final, final question for you is if listeners want to reach out with questions, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? They can find me on the website. They can find my phone number and give me a call. Absolutely. I'm happy to talk to, to anyone. You know, if you're in Washington, you know the door to my office is always open. I don't work behind closed doors. And I kind of consider the same uh, the same thing around the, around the firm. I'm happy to talk to anybody, any time. I do the same thing with with law students. I'm involved at fundraising for, the, for our alumni law school. And I often hear from students there and I talk to them. So. Well, I hope they take advantage of that offer. And my final thing is thank you so much for your time, Steve. This was fantastic. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to our audience. And uh, with Veterans Day approaching, I want to remind everyone to remember all those who, who've served and particularly those who did not have the good fortune to re return home. On this Veterans Day, as I have done for most of the last 30 plus years, I'll go down to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and leave a little little plaque in honor of my shipmates who didn't 
make it back, trying to remember them. So we owe a real debt of gratitude for those who, who've made such uh, sacrifices so that we can continue to live in this uh, wonderful country and enjoy the wonderful opportunities we have. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Those remarks are perfect for, for, the, for the reflection that we all should be doing. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 